in prayer. Father, thanks for today and for a beautiful, beautiful day out and for the weather, but for being able to come out to your house and to open your word to study it. Pray that you will guide our discussions and help us to understand that which we should know in Christ's name. Amen. We've been working through pictures of salvation. This is the notes from last time. Okay, that's true. No, it's not Teresa's fault. Um, yeah, I don't have any extras here, I don't think. Yeah, if you would. just to, Yeah. Um, we'll get a couple more here, so don't worry. All right, uh, but we're looking at pictures of salvation. And uh, we made the comment that the Old Testament is really a big picture book showing the truth of Christ. In fact, when Christ said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He's basically saying, look, you go look back at the Old Testament, you look back at the Old Testament Scriptures, and it's all pointing to me. Um, the Old Testament law all pointed to Christ. The Old Testament sacrificial system all pointed to Christ. Everything was pointing to Christ. And uh, we went through the, the picture of Adam and Eve with the animal that was slaughtered to give them their clothing, showing how God requires a proper clothing. Then we looked at Cain and Abel, a proper sacrifice. We looked at the ark, a proper protection covering. And then we looked at um, Abraham and Isaac, a proper substitute. The bronze serpent, a proper cure. And a couple of the greatest pictures in the Old Testament is the Passover and the Day of Atonement. Um, when was the Passover given? When did God institute the Passover? Egypt, 10th plague, right? Um, of course, what did God tell Mo- Moses to do? He told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not do that. And God brought 10 plagues on Egypt. Interestingly, if you study those 10 plagues, every one of them was against one of the Egyptian gods that they worshipped. You had the god of the Nile, the god of the animals, the god of the sun, the sun Ra, which was one of the chief gods. God turned the lights out. Um, God is showing his power over Egypt and uh, power over the Egyptian gods, which are no gods at all. We know that, but the Egyptians um, worship them. And finally, the last one is the Passover. No, he happened to not be the firstborn. He did die. That plague. Yeah, not necessarily. The the Pharaoh. Usually, it's the firstborn, but he happened to not be the firstborn. All right, that's that's what we can get from that. Um, But the Passover was instituted by God as a large picture, a big picture. And when we look at the New Testament, one of the things that Christ is often seen of is the Lamb of God. You look in Revelation, what do you see? The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Um, you see in 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks about he was a Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This is a vivid picture of the sacrifice of Christ. And when God instituted this, he instituted it very carefully. So let's go look at Exodus 12. Let's go there. The book of Exodus, chapter 12. Right at the beginning of the scripture. It talks about... um, 
how God set this up. Let's, let's just begin, start at the beginning of the chapter here. The Lord said to Moses, if I can get my pages right here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the first year for you. So what did God just do there? Change the calendar. This is the first month. This is going to be a memorial for you. And he said, uh, Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons according to which each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So what God is telling Moses is, look, every home, every household is to take a lamb. And if you happen to be a household and you only have three people in it or whatever, then get with your neighbors and get enough people together so that they can eat the lamb. All right, So it's sort of like... You want to eat that entire lamb. So if you only have three people, you're not going to be able to eat a whole lamb. So he wants to get enough people together in a household to do that. And they're to select a lamb. It could be a goat or it could be one of the sheep. Either one, doesn't matter, a sheep or a goat. And it's supposed to be, this is very important, without blemish. What do you think that means? Perfect, the blessed. Pardon? Yeah. God is saying, if you're going to bring a lamb to me, if you're going to bring an offering to me, don't bring me one that's sick and dead and dying and diseased and all that stuff. You've got to bring your best. Right. That lamb was to be part of the household. Um, and you can imagine little kids with a cute little cuddly lamb. You know, that's their little pet sort of kind of thing. Um, but they were to keep it in their home for three days, at least three days. Why three days? Make sure there's nothing wrong with it. Make sure that it is a lamb without blemish. It was a time of observation. It was a time to look at the lamb and make sure that that was the perfect lamb for that home. Um, no, I don't think so. Yeah. In fact, Jesus said that that refers to Noah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Okay. All right. So I don't think that's that. But the point is, there's a period of time in which this lamb was observed. And like Marshall said, it became part of the family almost. It was a little pet. You were to keep it in the home, not out with the rest of the flock. It was to be kept in the home. All right. And then he says, on the 14th day of the month, what are you to do at twilight? You're to kill it. You're to kill this lamb. Now, that would be sort of traumatic for the little kids to see this happen. And one of our difficulties here, how many people have slaughtered an animal in their life? You've seen one? Nobody's ever slaughtered? Yeah. You know... Yeah. I mean, we don't see that, right? So we're, we're sort of insulated from that whole... You know, if I want chicken, I go down to the grocery store and I get chicken, right? I don't walk out behind the 
house to the chicken coop and grab one and wring its neck and cut its head off and defeather it and cook it for dinner. You don't. I don't do that. <clears throat> but uh, not too long ago, if you wanted a chicken dinner, that's how it operated. Um, and I remember my grandfather was the actual butcher for the place there in Wellington. He would slaughter pigs. They would they would kill pigs and. He was the butcher for pigs. So we've not seen that, but it's gross. Put it that way, it's gross. Um, we're, we're completely, and you know, if I want a steak, you know, I go and there's a, the steak's already cut and all that. I don't have to find the cow out in the pasture and go from there. Um, but in those days, it was a little different. And these animals became part of the family, and the kids loved them. And uh, they were slaughtered in front of the whole family. You're to, t- you're to slaughter it. And, you'll t- and how did they slaughter the animal? Cut the throat. Cut the throat. Yeah. A lot of blood, right? Any of you anatomists out there know that the heart pumps directly to the head, so there's a lot of blood that comes out. Your back to what our children find that kind of horrific to see your chest and your animal being slaughtered. But that's another hell of an object lesson that God gave fathers yeah, we want, as an aside here, what we want to do in Christianity, a lot of people in Christianity want to do, they want to de-blood our faith. They want to get rid of the blood. They want to get rid of the, the fact that Christ had to die a bloody sacrifice. They don't like that notion. Um, probably the closest depiction of that was Mel Gibson's The Passion. And even that wasn't, there wasn't enough blood there because it was a very bloody thing. We, we don't like that. We, we shy away from that. We, we get away from that kind of thing. We don't like to think that Christ died as a bloody sacrifice, but that's exactly what he did. Um, being a priest in the, in the land of Israel was a very messy thing. Now, what color garments did they wear? Yeah. So how, much, how well does blood show up on white? Pretty well. I mean, can you imagine as a priest you had to slaughter hundreds of animals a day? Possibly. I mean, I I wouldn't want to be a priest. I don't know about you. It's just a messy job is what it is. But what is God trying to get through the consciousness of people? Sin is bad. It's really bad. It's a lot worse than you make it out to be. And it's so bad that a blood sacrifice is required to cover your sin. It's, it's not, you know, the lamb falls over dead. It's that you have to cut its throat and drain its blood. That's icky. That's an icky thing. Even though it wasn't that, that culture, however, was more inclined to see the glory. Yeah. And be familiar with the glory than our present day. You're right. So I only say that to say the effect that hopefully it would have on our present day culture would be somewhat less of an impact because of the daily, whether it's the Christians with the lions yeah. or whether it's the Nero's or what, you know, it was just a. You're right, it was a different society. They were used to seeing death. 
But in this case, this animal would become part of the family to an extent, especially with little children. It would become part of the family. And it was not just any lamb. And it's not that dad went out and killed the lamb and brought the lamb back for mom to cook. The kids actually witnessed this. And this was a teaching point for them. It was a time of education that blood is required. Um, the Orthodox ones say, yeah, we should. But they don't have a temple to do it on. Yeah, they don't have a place to do it. Right. Right. But, but they, they will, that will be reinstituted in the future here. And if you take eschatology next year, which Scammy will skip. Um, sorry, I'm just picking on you a little bit. You don't mind? Um, yeah. Uh, eschatology, which we'll get to, we'll talk about the coming sacrificial system that will be set up in Jerusalem. But this is this is this animal is to be killed and you'll take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So what are you to do to the the door going in? Well on the top and on the side you're supposed to take and paint this blood on it. Then they shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they'll eat it. So what do you do with the rest of the lamb? You eat it, the whole thing, right? And you're to eat it with unleavened bread. Now, I'll talk about that in a minute. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So you're supposed to eat it. This is the, this is the way it works. It's at twilight, when's twilight, the sun goes down. You kill the lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil, and then you have lamb dinner. And you eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Um, what is unleavened bread? No yeast in it. All right. Now, I don't want to get too much into this. We'll spend the rest of the day talking about it. But unleavened bread in, in, in that case, how, how, how did you make bread in those days? Anybody make bread? Any bread makers in here? Yeah. But we have the yeast. We pour the yeast in it. Pretend you didn't have any yeast. You got it. That's how you did it. In those days, the way you made bread, and what most of what women did almost all day long is bake bread. That was sort of like one of the staples of the diet, is that you took some bread that was already made, and you put the put it into the yeast of the dough mix so that it would rise and then that way you would perpetuate the yeast. Now, why would, uh, why would God want them to use unleavened bread and not leavened bread? Had to be brand new, in haste. You couldn't wait for it to rise. And I think there's another picture here. If you had unleavened bread, it didn't, that unleavened bread didn't come from anything that you had. I think there's a I think you can make the case that there's a picture here. What happened the next day after the Passover? They left. They left. And, they burned and God did not want them to bring anything from Egypt with them, including the leaven in the bread. Make a clean break. You're starting over. This is a clean break. This is the first month for you. This is going to be the beginning of years for you. This is going to, he's making a clean break with the old. 
It's, you're, not, you're no longer with the old. You're, you're going on to the new. And in fact, uh, this, this passing on of leaven was so popular in those days that when a young woman was married, her mother would give her, as a sign of the blessing, some of the bread that she made so that she could take it over into her new marriage and make the bread. And it showed the passing on sort of blessing from mother to daughter, this, this leaven. And God wanted them, you've got to eat it without without any leaven and eat bitter herbs. And what did the bitter herbs signify? The misery, the heartache of the, of the time. There's pictures in this, folks. And if you have anything left over in the morning, what do you do? You burn it. You don't take it with you. You don't make a lunch for the trip. In this manner you shall lead it with your belt fast and the sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. What's that all a picture of? That's right. God is saying, I've had it, this is it, you're out of here. And you're to eat it symbolically with your coat on. Now, in those days, you didn't eat with your coat on. That's like walking into somebody's house you know, in the middle of winter and you leave your coat on, your boots on, and, and have dinner because you're ready to hoof it out of there. That's the whole point. But, the, but what God is trying to say is you're going to get out of there fast. This needs to be ate, ate in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night... And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. This is interesting. I will execute judgment. What were the Egyptians banking on? Their gods. And who was one of their number one incarnations of God? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a god. Pharaoh was the sun god. He was the incarnation of the sun god. They were, Pharaoh was worshipped as a representation of God, if not deity himself. And it says, I'm going to execute judgment on them. Now, if the God of Egypt, who is the Pharaoh, the incarnation of Ra, can't protect his firstborn kid, what does that tell you about the power of God over him? It tells you something, right? The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So you better do this. And, by the way, if you're an average Israelite, you said, ah, you know, I don't think God's going to do this. What would have happened? Your firstborn would have died. God said, I'm going to go to every house. And, I, you know, I really like the Cecil B. DeMille movie, you know, where you see the little flog. That is really cool, you know. But, but I don't know how it was, but God struck the firstborn. Now, God knew who the firstborn is. Don't worry, he could sort it out. Um... He knows, he knows what one was born first. He's got that all figured out. And then he said, This day shall be a memorial for you, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from that first day till the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. What, what's the I picture of leaven here? Clean break clean break it's not understand leaven is not a picture of evil it's a picture of influence it's not evil necessarily the context will tell you whether that's what it is Christ told the disciples beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is their doctrine their influence it's not it's not evil the kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was love. And the kingdom of heaven is not evil. It's influence. It, its influence will spread. 
Leaven is a picture of influence. And what you see here in this picture is God said, I want you to get rid of all the influence. This is a clean break. It's not the old, it's a clean break. And, uh, and you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very first day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether you're the sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. So What's, where, do they, where do they put the leaven? You had to clean your house. Symbolically there, you cleaned your house to get rid of any influence. This is a picture of influence. Don't take any influence from the old to the new. Get no influence. And if you ate unleavened bread for seven days, when you got out of Egypt and you began to eat leavened bread again, where did that leaven come from? Not Egypt. It would be new. And that's the point. That's the point he's trying to make. New. Make a break. Interesting. But in the Exodus, you had... Yeah, and God said this, this is to be observed whether you're an Israelite or a stranger. This is how you observe it. All right. So what we have here is the Passover. Um, and when you see the Passover, you see some really fascinating, I think, parallels here. Now, understand, when we talked about a picture, does the picture give the complete story? No. It's, it's, it gives you some aspects of it, but it's not meant to be the full representation any more than a photograph is a full representation of the person. It's an image. It, it's something taken at a particular point in time, but it's not the person. You can't talk to the picture and it talk back to you. It's an image. The Passover is just that. You can't take every aspect and every element, every little piece of the Passover story and try to apply it to Christ, but you can apply large portions of it to see that there is a parallel there. And what do we know about Christ? Well, Christ was without blemish and spot and he was observed for how long? Three years. Three years. About three years, give or take. We don't know the exact length of his ministry. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of three years. And John, in fact, in First John says, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. And he uses the word theaomai. What do you think we get from that? Huh? Theaomai. No. Theomai. T-H-E-A-T-R-O-M-A-I. No. No. You go down to the movie theater. Observing. What do you do in a movie theater? You watch a screen. All right? You observe a screen. Theomai has to do with John is saying, we looked at him intently for a long period of time. 
Yeah, thespian. There you go, thespian. We, we looked at him. We observed him. We've seen him. It's not like John says, oh, I saw him. Like me, I could say, I saw Sammy. No. You look at, you, you observe, you watch. You, over a period of time, you see how that person lives. You see what that person does. And Christ spent three and a half years under a very big microscope. And at the end of it, what was said of him? I find no fault in him. Jesus Christ didn't just show up for a couple of hours then go to the cross and die. He was here for an extended period of time. We saw him. We watched him. And that's the imagery there. You're to watch the Lamb for three days. We watched Christ for three years. And by the way, it's not like they didn't try to find something. You understand that. It's not like the Pharisees were not trying to find something wrong with Christ. They, they put all of their energy into trying to find some way, something to blame him for. And when it was all said and done, they had to come up with liars to put him on the cross because they couldn't find anything. Are Messianic Jews required to fulfill the observation of Passover? No. In fact, what did God, what, what, in the New Testament, what did Christ replace the Passover with? The Lord's Supper. All right, which is a memorial. Okay? Memorial of His body, which is broken. His blood, which is spilled out. He changed it. Now, does He have a right to do that? Yeah, He's God. He can do what He wants, right? So, yeah, He did change that. So, we no longer observe the Passover. We observe the Lord's table. All right? It's a different thing. Yeah. The Jews will. The problem right now, unfortunately for the Jews, the Old Covenant is gone. It is non-effective anymore. Um, you can do the sacrifices, but they mean nothing because Christ has done the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Huh? No, they don't. They don't even accept it. And what was to happen on the, the, the sacrifice? Well, on the 14th day, the lamb was to be killed and the blood sprinkled on the doorpost and lentil. And what did Christ... What about Christ? Well, Christ died on the 14th of Nisan, which is... Nisan is the first day of the Jewish calendar. Jesus Christ died on the Passover as the Passover lamb. A.D. 29 or A.D. 32. It, it depends on which one of these dates... Their arguments back and forth as to which is which. I think it's more the 32 date, but that's just me. Um, and a few others believe that. And he was killed just as the Passover lamb was being killed on the Temple Mount. Talk about God's timing. Now, one of the difficulties people have say, okay, I don't understand. How could Christ celebrate the Passover the day before? and be the Passover lamb on the day after. Didn't he miss it by a day? No. No. Because the day begins at 6 p.m. Right. And, and, if you go back and understand the Jewish um, history there, there are actually two places where the Passover was celebrated. One for people from out of town, one from people within town. So Jesus Christ could not only celebrate the Passover with his disciples the night before, but he could be the Passover lamb the next day. All right, you've got to go do the research on that, but that's the short answer to it. He was the Passover lamb. Now, 
When Christ died on the cross as the Passover lamb, what happened in the temple with all the people there celebrating the Passover? Now that would freak you out. Because as a Jew, what were you told? The God's behind there. And that's a bad thing. If, if, the, if the veil is rent, you're dead. And it was thick. Yeah, this was a thick, heavy curtain and was rent from top to bottom, not bottom to top. Um, this was a supernaturally rent veil. I don't know, it was big. It was, it was a thick, heavy curtain. It was not something... It was thicker than the stage curtains, you know, that you, you see. This was a thick curtain and it was ripped right from top to the bottom. But Christ died at just as the Passover lamb was being slaughtered in the temple, symbolically as the Passover for all of Israel. He was the Lamb of God which took away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice. And you, you look at the chronology, it's very, very telling. And he died as the substitute. Um, this is the imagery. If you, want to, if you want to really get this concept of Christ's death, you've got, to think, you've got to really get your head around substitution. That's really the, the key concept. Jesus Christ died in place of me, personally. Um, he paid the price for me, personally. He took my place. I'm the one that should have died on that cross. I'm the one that should have been condemned to eternal death. But he took my place. He paid the penalty that I should have paid. And for me, and we're going to talk about this in the Gospel, for me to appropriate that, all I need to do is believe and ask him to forgive me. And he takes my place in the penalty. But here's a substitute. Um, when the angel observed the blood on the doorpost and lintel, he would pass over that house. That's why it's called Passover, because the angel would pass over the house. If it wasn't there, what happened? Firstborn died. Firstborn died. What about Christ? Christ is our substitute. He took our place. And he is the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is a very fancy word. It means satisfaction. That's what it means. And in fact, the root word for propitiation is the same root word in the Old Testament, mercy seat. When God sees the blood of Christ on our lives, what is He? He is satisfied. The wrath of God is appeased, is satisfied. He took my place. He paid the penalty for my sins. And this is an interesting, and I don't want to get back into this whole Calvinism, Arminianism, all that debate, but notice what it says here. Potentially, he's the propitiation for how many people? Everyone. His death is an infinite death. It's not that he just, he just paid enough to get the elect into heaven. He paid the full price for every human being that ever lived, but only those who appropriate it are forgiven. Only those who appropriate it receive eternal life. But Christ is our substitute. He took our place. Very vivid picture, very wonderful image of what Christ did, the ministry of Christ. And 
And, you know, of course, you can say that the lentils were the hands and the head that were bleeding. Christ died a bloody mess. Um, hyssop was used to paint the lentils. And what was Christ given at the cross? Vinegar on hyssop. Sponge. Sponge. The bitter herbs showing the, the pain, the sorrow. There's imagery here. Now, you can't take it too far and create theology out of it. That's, you can't go there. But you can see that there certainly is a vivid imagery. And Christ fulfilled the imagery of the Passover. And those Jewish kids and those Jewish people, whenever they celebrated the Passover, they remembered that that lamb that they slaughtered paid the penalty, in this case, for the firstborn. God passed over. You're right. First John two two. Yeah, first John two two, sorry. And um it's interesting, just just in a historical aside just in a historical aside. They dug up this thing called the Minerpta Stele. Minerpta is one of the Egyptian guys. And it's called the Dream Stele. There's a dream it's called a dream stele. You know what a stele is? It's a long, it's the long um, oblong stone pillar with writing on it. You ever see those? An obelisk. It's like an obelisk. It's got writing on it, and they found one of these. And uh, it's one of the pharaohs who had a dream, and the dream was that he would become pharaoh. And he happened to be the pharaoh right around the time of the Exodus. Now, what would be the historical significance of him having a dream that he would become Pharaoh. Think sideways. He wasn't meant to be Pharaoh. Who was meant to be Pharaoh? His older brother. In fact, he had an older brother. And he became Pharaoh. So it's interesting that even in historical context, you see there is support. Is, is that exactly... No, we don't know for certain, but you know, it's interesting to see the evidence there. That... Yeah, because he, 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 he wasn't supposed to be the Pharaoh. He wasn't supposed to be that. But he wasn't the firstborn. Now we have another day, the Day of Atonement. This is a, another vivid imagery or picture of Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews really picks up on this significantly. We find this in, Hebrew, or in Leviticus chapter 16. So if you go there, that's the next book over from Exodus. I, I, most Christians have never read Leviticus. And um, most of them don't even pay attention to the imagery that you see in the sacrificial system. It, it, Leviticus is one of those books, like the first hurdle when you're reading through the Bible. If you can get past Leviticus, you've got smooth sailing to the begats of Chronicles. And once you get past those, you're pretty much home free. Um, but Leviticus is a tough read because we're from a different culture. We're from a different time frame. We don't understand it. But he, uh, Leviticus 16, we have the Day of the Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Who are they? And takers? Phineas and... Phineas and... Hmm? It's Hophni and Phineas. Okay. And uh, what happened to them? 
they die because they offered strange... Yeah, they, they, they celebrated the day before their ordination and they came into the temple and they didn't do something right. We don't know what it's said. That they did something out of order. They didn't do something right and God struck them dead. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Aaron. Um, you find this in... I know somebody's going to ask me that. Um, let's go back. Yeah, it's Nadab and Abihu, not Hophni and Phinehas, sorry. Nadab and Abihu. There's Hophni and Phinehas is another couple of guys. There's Nadab and Abihu. And um, they were the sons of Aaron. They were to become priests. Aaron was the high priest. They were to be priests. And uh, before they were ordained, they went out and evidently they got a little tipsy. Because after that, it's interesting, God gives a prohibition saying the priest is not to have anything to drink. We don't know what they did. It doesn't say exactly what they did, but they did something wrong and God killed them. And you say, well, that's pretty rough on God. I mean, why would he do that? What's the matter with God? Did he have a bad hair day or something? Um, No, that's not the point. What was God trying to make a point of very early on? I told you what to do. Do it. That's all. Just just do it. I mean, I've given you the way back to me. I've given you a way to be to have your sins covered for a period of time. I've given you that. You've got to do it my way. You don't do it just any way you want. That's the Cain idea, right? I'll bring God the fruit of the land and He'll just be happy with it. No, it doesn't work that way. You come, you come to God on His terms, not your terms. Well, that too. The, the two people, the husband and wife. Um, Ananias and Sapphira? Yeah, yeah, those two. Yeah. yeah, sometimes, and by the way, you know, it's not that Ananias and Sapphira were anomaly. That should be the norm, technically. If you promise something to God and you don't deliver, God should strike you. That's why are you walking around. That's the question. But the whole point there is God's trying to make an that lesson. He said, look, I, I'm serious about this. I've given you instructions. They're clear. They're not ambiguous. And just do it my way. And everything will be fine. If you don't, there's a price to be had for that. And they evidently didn't do it right. And um, so God institutes the Day of Atonement here. He says, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, what do you have? Well, how many people understand the Old Testament tabernacle? Any? I'll draw a little quick, quick picture here. I should have put a little picture on the slide, but I didn't do that. But basically, you had three pieces of it. You had the outer courtyard. All right. You had a little door here. You had a bronze altar here, and you had the laver. And then inside this, you had another place called the holy place. And inside the holy place, you had another place called the holy of holies. Okay. And in the holy place, you had the candelabra, the menorah. You had the table of showbread, the altar of incense. Inside here, you had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it. And what is God saying? Don't go in there. Why? Why will you die? That's where God was. That's that's it. God's saying, I'm going to dwell in a cloud between 
the cherubim on the mercy seat. I'm going to be there. Ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, that's, that's a good depiction of the Ark of Covenant, actually. It's a fairly good one. Um, God said, I'm going to dwell there in a cloud on the mercy seat. And if you walk in there, you're dead because no man can stand in the presence of God and live. Don't come in there. Don't, don't do that. Which may indicate that maybe that's what Nadab and Abihu did. Maybe they entered the Holy of Holies. They thought that they could do that. They're the priests, after all. They have the right to do that. We don't know, technically. But, but God is saying, don't come in there at all. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Oh, don't come in there at any time. But if you do come in there, this is how you do it. I'm going to tell you how it's done. I'm giving the instruction here. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. For who? Himself. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. What's he supposed to do? Take a bath, put on clean clothes. What's that a picture of? Cleansing. And he shall take it from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats, one for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. So before he went in to this Holy of Holies, what did he have to do? Make a sacrifice for himself. To cover his sin. In case there was some sin on him, he had to make a sin offering. So he had to worry about his own state before he went in to the presence of God. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the goat, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But on the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it that it may sent into the wilderness to Azazel. Azazel is the idea of a wilderness area, a place of desolation. All right, out in the wilderness. All right, so what have we got so far? We've got a bull for Aaron. He's got to have a sin offering for himself. And then at the tour here, he has to take two goats and they're to cast lots. They're to roll the dice or whatever. One goat is going to become a sacrifice. Another is going to become what we call the scapegoat. All right? Yep. And Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. He shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So before he goes into the Holy of Holies, right before it is the altar of incense. What's he to do with this incense? Put it on there. And what is that incense going to do? Smoke, right? That's what incense does. It creates smoke. Right. Right. You got smoke. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and the front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So he's going here. This is to make a sacrifice for himself. 
Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring it, its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus she shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one will be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself or the house and for all the assembly of Israel. What's the tent of the meeting? This whole area. No one's allowed in here while the priest is doing his thing. Stay out. They're stay outside here. And if the priest came out, what was that? Good news. God has accepted it. If he didn't come out, that wasn't good. Right. And when he had... Yeah. Yeah, you can at least drag him out. And when he's made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of the meeting on the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. There's a guy there ready to take this goat, and what do they do with that goat? They take it out into the wilderness, into a remote area. What's that picturing? taking the sin of Israel away. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of the meeting, shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Shall bathe his body in water in the holy place, put on his garments and come out and offering his burnt offering and the burnt offering for the people and make atonement for himself and for all the people. And the fat of the sin offering which he shall burn on the altar and he who lets the goat go into Azazel shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water and afterward he may come in the camp and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood has been brought to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp and there shall be a statue to you forever that in the seventh day on the tenth month of the de- month you shall afflict yourselves and do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And he's setting this up as a perpetual thing. All right. So what do we have here? We have the Day of Atonement. And what's the picture of the Day of Atonement? The covering. Covering for sin. And what did Aaron have to do? He had to make an atonement for himself, first of all, right? Before he could atone for the people. And what did he do with the blood? He sprinkled it upon the mercy seat and that covered the sin of Israel and what did he have to do the next year go back to the same thing and you have the imagery of the goat being led out into the wilderness and let go removing the sin of Israel with it symbolically you also have um, see how many times he had to wash he had to come back and wash himself and then the guy who took it out had to take a bath and the guy who burned it had to take a bath. What is God trying to get across here? Cleansing. The separation from clean, cleansing. Two, two points about the Leviticus here. About the Leviticus and about the uh, two sons. You know, to, to your point about them not like doing something that's wrong. God is nowhere in, in his word <coughs> tells anybody today, you go over here and you figure out what to do. 
He doesn't do that. He always is very specific about what it is we're to do or not to do. And as far as the living is being a hard book to read, you know, I, I just want to be skeptics and, and extend to them, you know, could this, could God's word not be God's word? Is this another book created by man? What man would sit down and concoct a story with so much detail, with so much detail, where there's no contradiction in it? Look at all the detail that's involved in the book of Leviticus, which you should do, this who would, have, who would sit down and do all that? Just for the fun of it. And not only that, but the, it was fulfilled in Christ. Right. And then in all yeah. Well, if you're a liberal, you can, this is not the word of God, so you got to come up with some way to, <clears throat> to explain it away. But what well, you, you're right. God, don't think of God as being overbearing, unkind, unloving, ungracious. He's given us a way back, and it's not. It's not. Like, like Marshall said, it's not like, okay, Aaron, figure out what kind of offering to bring. He told him. It wasn't with Cain and Abel. Okay, guys, go figure out what I want. See which one he guesses right. No, he told them. And in our day, God has told us how to get back to him. God told us how to restore our relationship with him. And if we come that way, guess what? We get restored. You've got to do it God's way. He's the one we have offended. We come on his terms, not our own. We don't make up the rules we come God's way we come the way of the cross we're not going to see that this week but we're going to see it next week when we talk about what is the gospel what is it that you have to believe we'll talk about that next week but what do you have you had the priestly preparation what did the priest have to do well he, he had to go and, and offer a sin offering for himself and go through all these ritual washings um, before he could do the activities on the day of atonement What's interesting about Christ? What was the difference with Christ? Did he have to make an atonement for himself? He's our high priest, right? He's the high priest of the new covenant. Did he? He's without sin. He didn't have to make an atonement for himself. He was already perfect. It's not like... Look at this. For such a high priest became us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who's that? Jesus Christ. He did not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. This is the thing about Christ. Christ is not only the high priest, but he is the sacrifice. And he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first because he didn't have any sin that needed in that sacrifice to be offered for it. He is the perfect sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this imagery and shows how Jesus Christ is our high priest. Um, another passage in Hebrews that brings us out is Hebrews chapter 5. Um, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Axiomatic truth. How did you get to be a priest in the Old Testament? And God chose you. You didn't take a, you know, if you were from the, one of the tribes, you didn't take a career assessment test and say, well, priest is a good thing. You like killing animals, so we'll make you a priest. No, that wasn't the way it operated. You were chosen to be that, not by your own choice. You were chosen to be priest. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. What made the priest sympathetic? Well, he has the same problems that you have. 
Did Christ have our same... Did He face our temptations like we did? Absolutely. He can be a sympathetic and faithful high priest. Because of this, He's obliged to offer sacrifices for His own sins just as He does for those of the people. Right? Aaron had to offer sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner like the rest of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Aaron did not say, hey, I want to be the priest. God chose Aaron to be the priest. God chose Christ to be the high priest. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ was made a priest by who? God the Father. Chose Christ to be a high priest. And it says here, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ became our high priest. He became the substitute for us. Not only is he our high priest, but he is the offering himself. He himself is the offering. And then it says here, what's the procedure? Well, the high priest would take the blood of the goat and the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? That's where God dwelled between the cherubim. In Leviticus 16.15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Take the blood in a censer which is a shallow bowl and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. What did Christ do? Hebrews 9.12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood. He entered once in the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What holy place did he enter? Where? Where? In heaven. Remember, the Hebrew writer says that the tabernacle was an earthly picture of the tabernacle that is in heaven. And what do you have in heaven? We have the throne of God. What is around the throne of God? The Cherubim, okay? I want her to get his ass, so I wanted her because she always argues with me on that. And, and that is the holiness of God. That is the presence of God. And you also have an altar of incense in heaven, right? We see that in Revelation. We also have the seven spirits of God sort of flaming before the throne of God. What's that a picture of? The menorah, the seven candle lampstand. You don't have the bronze altar because there doesn't need to be an altar in heaven. But what does Christ do? Christ entered into the holy place with his own blood. Not the blood of a bull, not the blood of a goat, but his own blood. And because of that, he's obtained eternal redemption for us all. It's a final sacrifice. The Old Testament Day of Atonement had to be repeated forever. Every year, another one. Every, Every year. The seventh month, tenth day, you had another Day of Atonement. And that sacrifice was good for how long? One year. It covered. Did it take away the sin? Covered the sin. It didn't take it away. It didn't take it away. Every year, the priest had to do that. 
It's going to be a statue. So during the Day of Atonement, when the high priest was in the temple, where, where would the Sanhedrin have been at that point in time? Or, or the ruling Jewish... They would probably be at the temple there, in the outward area, not within the courtyard. Yeah. Well, they didn't believe Christ was their Messiah. Was the problem? But what did Christ do? One offering. Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. What holy place did he enter? The heavenly one. Which are figures of the true. What's that? The the holy place made with hands is a figure of the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. But in heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered in the holy place every year with the blood of others. He didn't have to go in there every year. For then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If Christ had to go in there every year, every time he went in, he would have to be re-crucified, suffer again. didn't have to do that. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sin of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus Christ offered himself one time. He was the final sacrifice. You don't need another day of atonement. There was a, there was a built-in expiration date to the Old Covenant. Christ is the permanent sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Theoretically, yeah, Christ died for the sin of all people who have ever lived. But who's it, who's it appropriated for? Those who believe. Um, I'm trying to think of the other verse there's another one where it talks about the um, the permanence of Christ's death and, and what, it, what it basically says in, in Hebrews is that if the old covenant could take away sin then why was it repeated every year? What does that tell you? It didn't take it away. That's the point. It didn't take it away. No. If, in the, now, what you, one thing you're seeing here, this is an aside, you want to understand Hebrews? You better understand Leviticus. You're not going to understand Hebrews. All right? Because they go hand in hand. In fact, Hebrews is almost a New Testament commentary on the book of Leviticus. And it's telling you the fulfillment in Christ. Christ offered himself once for sin. He took his own blood into the holy place and he obtained eternal redemption. It was a once for all. And not only that, it says he entered into within the veil, right? And when he entered within the veil, who did he take with us? With him? Us. Through his blood, we have access to the very presence of God. Go figure that one out. We have access to the presence of God through who? Jesus Christ. What gives you the right to pray to God? Your goodness? I hope not. 
Christ paid the way. Christ is the one that opened the door. Christ is the one that rent the veil. Christ is the one that ushers us right into the very presence of God and says, these are my brothers and sisters. And God says, welcome. God the Father says, welcome. It's through the blood of Christ that he does this. The purging of sin, you see this. Uh, the body of the goat and bull was to be carried outside the camp and burned with fire. Burned completely up. Eradicated, erased. What did Christ do? Where did he suffer? Outside the camp. Outside the wall of Jerusalem. In fact, he was taken out where they killed the criminals. And that's where he was sacrificed. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He went outside the camp. The bodies of these beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Christ went outside the camp. Christ is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. He fulfills that, all that imagery that you see around the Day of Atonement. Unlike the priest, he didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He is the sacrifice. He's not only the high priest, but he is the one that's going to sacrifice himself. And his blood, unlike the blood of bulls and goats, didn't cover sin. It took it away. Forever. We don't have a temporary covering. We have a permanent covering. So that's the Day of Atonement. And that's good because the handouts that I sent Teresa last night are will be for tomorrow. We didn't get to those. Yeah, next Sunday. And we're going to look at faith, grace, and the gospel. That's where we're headed. What is the gospel? What is it that you have to believe in order to be a Christian? We're going to talk about that. So let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day you've granted. And I pray that you would... Help us to ponder these truths. Thank you for this imagery and thank you for Christ who paid the penalty for all of our sin and covered it perfectly. Thank you for this day, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Gospel.